thank you very much for inviting me here. It's, it's a great honor to be here. And uh, I hope you will enjoy my presentation. Actually, I'm, I'm not really representing my own NGO. Uh, I'm, first, I'd like uh, to present my research findings with you and then discuss a, uh, a possible research agenda to study the relationship between environmental issues and violence and or peace. Um, I... Okay. C can I... Um... Yeah, that would be nice. Thank you. <clears throat> I actually thought that this seminar was called Challenging the Conventional Wisdom. <laughs> And uh, I like the title a lot because uh, that's what I like to do most. Um, from academic audiences, my experience that people are much more informed about so many sides of an argument, much more than the NGO world or the policy world. So probably what I'm going to tell you will not surprise you very much, but if we have time, I'd like to to discuss the surprising policy agenda that usually comes out from the wrong assumptions in the environmental security literature. Um, so just to go very quickly through my research finding, I did my research uh, in, in uh, northern Kenya, close to the Ethiopian border. You see an, an inselberg in the middle and it's surrounding, surrounded by, by a very dry desert land and inhabited by um, <coughs> nomad people. So since 1997, I did research here where I looked at the relationship between natural resource management, resource scarcity, and ethnic violence. Now, northern Kenya is a uh, region where many variables that play a role in this relationship uh, concurrently exist. You have a place where there's a huge ethnic diversity, a dwindling resource base, extreme poverty, a gap between rich and poor, there is a farmer and a herder population, there's rapid institutional change and extreme climate variability. And these are variables that we usually assume to explain violence in a region. Um, to show you some pictures quickly, these are uh, uh, areas that where ethnic clashes occurred in a, in a, in a desert area where there's an abandoned well site in Rawan. Uh, Torby, there's a, there was a massacre. The shackle you see there was actually a, a small school where a number of school children were killed, and then down there, uh, some refugees under a tree that I interviewed a lot. Now, um, just to give you an impression of the, the ecology, this is in the rainy season. This is as green as it gets sometimes, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's, it's a quite um, marginal area. Now, there's a rapid population growth, as you can, can see, which, which is uh, important to keep in mind when you look at the, the violent statistics later on. Um, just an impression of how variable rainfall is. Uh, I got this, this rainfall data from a meteorological station on the mountain, so where the precipitation is uh, higher than in the surrounding, surrounding lowlands where um, in, in desert areas can be 150 to 200 millimeters of rainfall, but here on the mountain it is on average 800 millimeters. Um, now, I started with a thorough qualitative study on the use and management of water sources, uh, water allocation, ownership and use rights to water, and competition over water resources. Now, I started this study in a period of very heavy rainfall. The rain 
the rain uh, fell a lot between 1997 and 1999, and it was for nomadic people actually a relative time of abundance. At the same time, I observed a very sharp increase in the number of ethnic clashes and death, uh, death cases in the whole region. It was a bit uh, uh, election-related, there were, there were elections at the time, but most of the violence was raids, cattle and ca camel raids. Then I was there again in the year 2000, when it was extremely dry. There was hardly water, there was no pasture, there was, no, there was famine, and very high livestock mortality. And uh, many water sources dried out, and the pressure on the few remaining water sources was extremely high. Now, what I observed, that there were disputes over the use of natural resources, but they were not so deadly. Let me see if uh, <coughs> there's a, a table here. Um, <coughs> so, um, I observed that during time of real stress, people actually became very passive, and they were hungry and worried, and uh, they were not easy to mobilize into the collective action of violence. They actually rather looked for ways to avoid ethnic tension uh, by sharing the water that was available. And they actually rather looked for legal means, and uh, they emphasized the tra traditional institutions to negotiate and cooperate with enemies rather than fighting them. And uh, of course, it, it was just two years, and then I thought uh, maybe this is a, these are two extreme cases. You cannot conclude anything from this. And then I, I looked at the archives for uh, for yeah evidence of what had happened in the past. So I looked uh, at more than 60 years of archival reports on ethnic relations and uh, in this district, in this particular district. I looked at the annual reports, at police records, and the minutes of the security meetings just to count the number of deaths per month, and then I detected a pattern in rainfall and violence. As you can see here, there are twice as many death cases in a wet year than in a dry year. Then you could think, okay, uh, scarcity-induced uh, violence can be solved maybe in the first wet year after a drought, because um, then people will feel better. But actually, an uh, average in wet year following a drought was as peaceful as a normal dry year, or a, a drought year. Um, here you see it in a, in a graph. The number of incidents, violent incidents, actually is a bit stable, but the number of people killed uh, is much higher in wet years than in drought years. Then, uh, for, the, for the seasonal fluctuations, you see the same, same pattern. Um, when I summed all the death cases over the 60 years and I grouped them into the seasons, you, uh, you see that almost twice as many people die in, in the wet season of April, June, than in, uh, in, in the dry season of January, March, and October, December. You see also from this graph that most people are killed in rapes, in, in uh, ethnic clashes where livestock is involved. And uh, only the July-September season sh shows that there are many people killed still in, in a dry season. But when I looked at it thoroughly, they were all election-related. Um, here <coughs> you see again a pattern. People killed in rates, in the rates and the rainfall bar. It, it fluctuates together. And here another one, and we compared uh, 
uh, <coughs> with another district in Turkana district where we only got the statistics until uh, 1975 79 grouped for five year periods compared with the, uh, the moving average in rainfall and there you see a fluctuation again the higher rainfall the lower uh, <coughs> the higher rainfall the more people die and the dry it is the less people die another trend you see that actually people assume that uh, violence is increasing there's not much ev evidence that this is true these are absolute figures if you know that the population has increased and certainly doubled over the years, if not more, then there's actually a relative decrease in the number of people dying in ethnic clashes. Okay. Now, of course, you want to know what, what would be the explanation for this. There are many uh, explanations, but one of them, when, when I asked directly the, the nomads involved, and also those who like to raid, who carry out raids, they say it's obvious, it's, it doesn't make sense to raid people in the, in, the, in, in the drought because the cattle is too thin, they're weak, you cannot hide them in the bush, you, there's no water to drench them, so what are you fighting for? And uh, during a wet time, there, which is actually a relative time of abundance, the cattle is fat, they're strong, there's water everywhere, there's vegetation where you can hide, also the rain washes away tracks, uh, if you have experience in doing research in, in a desert area, tracks and following tracks are extremely important. People are very skilled in that. So rain washes away tracks, and um, there's also a labor surplus. A dry time is, is puts, puts a lot of pressure on the available labor that a household has. And uh, in a wet season, there is, there is plenty of labor available, and actually young men uh, organize themselves in such uh, times of abundance to, to carry out raids. Okay. Now, <clears throat> to sum up, most violent encounters between ethnic groups here are livestock related, and uh, other conflicts between ethnic groups are not so deadly. So the policy implication for this is if you if you want to establish something like peace or so, then uh, you can actually know that as long as young men profit from this kind of violence, and they don't think it's anything negative, there'll be no peace at all. And actually, uh, many people keep this area of insecurity. Insecurity is, is good for thieving. And uh, yeah, the, the labor surpluses in households in such insecure areas actually uh, contribute a lot. Now, secondly, what I think and what I've observed that border zones are always more violent. Border zones are often characterized by marginality of uh, ecology, by very low population density, and uh, they are below or beyond the control of the state. And actually, such border zones attract a certain type of people as well. <coughs> such people who profit from insecurity, they, they are attracted to border zones. They, they can hit and run and cross the border easily and they will never be found. You can remain invisible. And you remain out of the, reach, uh, of the reach of the central government. So smuggling, raiding, banditry attacks, they are quite common in these borderlands. 
Another policy implication for this would be that uh, unless there is very, very good cooperation between two governments on both sides of the of an international border, criminal activities, uh, including violence, will just go on. I, I think actually that uh, a higher population density is good for security. Of course, then the more people, the more social control, the more economic activities, the more ingenuity to cope with scarce resources. And uh, I actually observe that out-migration in an area threatens security, not in-migration. Um, another issue is that, okay, water is a very scarce resource, but this is a resource that nomadic pastures cope already with since the beginning of mankind. They have developed institutional arrangements that secure survival in times of drought. And um, during droughts, people reconcile past conflicts, as I said, and they, they, they rather actually cooperate in order to survive. The policy implication for this, because people have not noticed this, uh, if, there is, if people don't fight over access to resources and there is violence, then drilling more boreholes would not be solving any security problem there. But this is what many NGOs also do, drilling boreholes in places of insecurity because people, they think people fight over extra resources. Um, what I've observed as well, that during climate stress, um, people rather organize themselves. And in this area, they organize themselves in water users associations, and they actually make sure that people get an equal share in water. And uh, even though many wells are privately owned, the water inside is a common property, a common good. And uh, safeguarding the well together and maintaining peace around the well site is the traditional way in dealing with scarcity in this particular region. region. And I have done this study on land as well, private land and communal land, and the same holds true for communal land. Then the policy implication would be that, <coughs> what I would like to stress, that it's nothing new really, but uh, in policy circles people ignore this. Privatization of resources in such areas will not create peace. Um, another thing that people assume often is that poor people uh, are more easy and more inclined to uh, to engage in violence than than uh, rich people would be. And uh, in this case, it's not. It is the resourceful people that engage in violence that organize it the raiders with animals, they raid. It's not people who have nothing who uh, engage in raiding. So actually policymakers often look at the wrong people because they think that raiding is, is the result of poverty. <coughs> so <coughs> I would say that um, Two of my assumptions on which my research was originally based proved wrong. Violence is not drought related. And another thing is that I could see that the number of battle deaths is not much higher now than in the past. So, concluding this, I can actually say that I'm often struck by the carelessness of quantitative statements in the security literature. There, people assume that there's an increase of violence without any evidence in the number of battle deaths per year when you adjust for population growth. And the same holds true for, for the weapons that are used. 
is often said that the pro proliferation of small arms causes more battle deaths on the whole continent. But we need evidence here. Battles in Kenya with machetes and spears can be as deadly as the ones with guns. So far, I have not come across any quantitative study where traditional guns and where traditional weapons and guns were, were actually compared. And then I saw that actually very few scholars do uh, thorough ar archival research. Hardly anyone looks, looks at the police records, or they are um, many are biased in their sources of reporting. For instance, using newspaper articles is an interesting way of collecting your research material, but it often has a seasonal and also a political bias. And I know from this area, reporters don't like to travel in the rainy season, and uh, they don't like border zones in general. There's much violence in rural areas and in border zones, they are unreported. Now, much violence, of course, takes place outside the reach of the state. These battle deaths do not reach the national statistics and the large data banks. But uh, I wonder how the new models would look like if they take <coughs> violence in borderlands into account. Okay, now, I don't know where, where my slide number 12 is. I think I've jumped to, I've skipped many slides. But that shouldn't be a problem. How much time have I left? Not much. Not much, okay. <laughs> Um, no. Maybe I, I go then to what, what, uh, what does this imply for the study on violence? I think I've already mentioned. It's just been a full screen. <laughs> yeah, but I, then I don't know what comes first and what comes later. <laughs> yeah. Um, Just to give you some hints on what, what, how can we improve actually our understanding in the environmental sec security uh, and knowledge, and um, I think it's, it's, it is it is obvious that we need more case study material to get empirical evidence and to get past and present battle death cases adjusted for population growth, compare research rich and research poor areas, and then particularly I think it is important to study the behavior of the free rider. The free rider is, is the, the one who profits from common goods without contributing anything. And <coughs> um, the, the, the institutions and the, the formal and also informal institutions that societies deploy to, uh, to manage resources, they are often uh, meant to uh, reduce the chance of free riding. And the, the, the free rider and his behavior can, can actually explain a lot of, of uh, criminal activities in an area where, where resource marginality is a problem. Um, then then it, it would be interesting to study uh, resource conflicts that were solved in a non-violent way. And, uh, it is, it is very interesting to, to question why, for instance, uh, Kenya wasn't, uh, did not develop into a, a huge civil war after the elections of 2007, compared to other African countries that did only 2,000 battle deaths, which is, which is low, on a population of 30 million. And um, actually, we don't know exactly why 
what, what happens in the communities, why people really stuck to peace and <coughs> were holding on to each other instead of participating in the, in the violent conflict. jump to another slide. Oh, no, I see the counting is really wrong. There should be three more. There are three slides at the beginning, that's all. Oh, oh that's why. <coughs> that added to the, the, the total number, okay. Now, and um, I think uh, the, the, the value of statistics, we should not underestimate. Um, I know from new research that uh, the number of battle deaths in Africa waged for population is decreasing already for more than 10 years. And uh, another interesting <coughs> finding is that the number of people dying in, in natural disasters is also decreasing, wait for population, even though the number of natural disasters is increasing over the last 20 years. And this is a very interesting uh, given. And uh, the explanation now is what I heard from the scholars who are studying this information, that people are much better organized now to uh, actually help themselves and help each other in, in times of environmental stress, be it uh, a natural disaster or be it actually uh, violence. And um, the, 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 the green conflicts that are occurring right now, they often have to do with resource grabbing with uh, people being displaced from, from uh, rural areas, <coughs> people displaced from forests because of uh, creation of parks or um, land is grabbed from them for, uh, by the private sector. And um, such kind of green <coughs> conflicts become less and less violent because uh, institutions are used to, to look for legal solutions and um, to uh, to build <coughs> institutions in society that actually guide the benefits that people can accrue from, from natural resources. Um, <coughs> yeah, I think I'm at, uh, at the end of my presentation. So actually, that is my next research agenda. We are now looking at uh, uh, conflicts over these value, valuable resources that involve the state and the private sector and communities to find out under which conditions such uh, conflict develop either violently or non-violently. And uh, we do also action research that involves communities to see how, in, how they can deploy new uh, institutions and design new institutions to, to actually um, get more control and more political space to control and exercise their power and rights over resources. Thank you very much.